0: 2001 I was in a a bad car accident up until that time I was motivated I was really I loved living um but I I don't feel like I had a whole lot of focus and um you know this tragedy that happened um, a friend of mine passed and uh it was a really difficult time to go through but um in the long run I think it really focused me and uh It made me think about today. I gotta seize today. I thought that I was the next one to go. So I felt like I really had to take advantage of the time that I had. And that made me learn how to paraglide. It made me try things skiing. It made me try, you know, meet more people, go different places. You know, I get a little choked up talking about it because it was a really difficult time, but it really did teach me a lot and made me appreciate life.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell, Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human my guest today is Ben Eaton who most assuredly qualifies as an expert in the experience of being human. I remember at your wedding Benny that your brother Ace said, "I just wish that I could live Ben's life." Something to that effect. He's an iron sculptor, he's a big mountain backcountry skier, he is a paraglider, he lives in Crested Butte, Colorado. He is one of the happiest guys that I've met, and, and he does some super cool stuff. Benny, thank you for joining us.
0: Great to be here. Thanks, Chris.
1: Yeah. Now, we have to go a little bit back because we were roommates in Vale, Colorado in, what was this, 95, 96, right? Yes. And you had just moved out, like just graduated from college, right? And just moved out? Yes.
0: graduated from St. Lawrence University in 94. Um moved there on um, that fall with um, my buddy Jonas, John Simosferos. And um that's when I are I obviously already knew you, but I didn't really know Sarah and um got to move in with you guys. It's
1: great. Yeah. That was awesome. Now I want to remember because the thing is that's where your that's where your iron sculpting started, right? Yes. And, and I always loved this story. How did, you, how did you find a way to be an iron sculptor? <laughs> well,
0: um, at St. Lawrence, I was a fine arts major. So I did a lot of sculpture, um, but m- most of them, large size sculptures, they would take months to do and um, be really expensive. And um, once I was done with them, I'd be really proud of the finished um, product. Um, I'd have these huge things that then I would have to try to find a home for. Um, so um, I decided uh, to focus my energies into uh, uh, ironwork and um, something that um, sculpture that is actually usable. So pardon me. Um, so I... Um, was doing a menial job when I moved to Vale, and um, decided uh, that I really wanted to find somebody in the Vale Valley that worked in steel, and um, optimally a, a blacksmith. So um, I was doing a temp job at the time.
1: A blacksmith. Okay. Yeah. So, so for the rest of us, we think of a blacksmith as some some gigantic guy with like huge forearms. And an anvil who is who is making horseshoes. Yes, <laughs> that is the stereotype. Yes. What what is a blacksmith? What does that mean?
0: Um, well, it's an iron worker, but um, typically an ornamental blacksmith is um, someone who worked in iron um, before technology um, came in, where you were able to. Um, use electricity for welding and um, use um all kinds of high-tech machinery to come to your um your final product where blacksmithing kind of takes it back um a bunch of years and um we still um, use heat to create our final product so um i forge the metal rather than cutting and welding it together so um, so you
1: forge it meaning that, that i mean like what kind of heat are you talking about when you have to get because you have to get this to a molten state or to a or i, I don't not know
0: quite molten but it's really close it's um typically a um you you can tell the heat of the metal by the color of the metal and um so a, a high yellow is Optimal for forging. You can actually move the metal around on your anvil and in your trip hammer um, and form it with your with your hammers to make whatever you want. Um, So that's about 2,800 degrees, and um, it starts um, sparkling and falling apart at about 3,000 to 3,200 degrees. So.
1: So what's a do you have to do you have to stoke this are you like building a fire every day or
0: um traditionally a coal forge you do have to um stoke and work and that is a major portion of the process is um being able to tend your fire and to um to make it a um really efficient um burning fire um I do use a propane forge though. I have three different propane forges. I have a coal forge and I use it every once in a while, but um, you know, it, it's a lot more efficient, cleaner, safer to use propane. Um, so that's what, that's what most blacksmiths do today. Um, it's best to learn how to blacksmith with a coal forge and then um, once you know how to use that coal forge and you can appreciate how hard it is, then you can go and use propane.
1: Because the thing is with the coal forge, one, you're building a fire and you're trying to get a consistent heat, but two, you're doing your work in addition to stoking your fire to making sure that it maintains a consistency. Is that, is yeah. that yeah. part of the, the multitasking is the issue there?
0: Yes. And, and it's a dance and it's a, um, a beautiful dance. When you watch somebody who really knows what they're doing, um, you know, it's, it's working the iron. And then, as you said, um, being able to control your fire, it's not just like a wood fire where um, you just throw a log on it and it's good for the next 20 minutes or, or a half hour, or whatever you um, with the coal uh, forge, you're, you're starting with coal, but you're creating coke. Um, which is uh, an off product of um, burning the impurities off the coal. And you have this Coke, which is, um, it's like a a popcorn uh, almost substance. And that is um, where you really get a lot of your um, high end fuel to get your fire hot enough to get it up to that 3,000 degrees that you, you need for, um, for forge welding or for a lot of the different, um, things that you might do. Um, you know, there's so many.
1: Wow. Okay. So this is, so a blacksmith is somebody who's creating this, who's working with the forge, who's getting this almost molten metal. And then, and then you have it on your, on your anvil. And you said you had a, a trip hammer. What's a trip hammer?
0: A trip hammer, um my trip hammer is a 50-pound little giant trip hammer made in 1927. And um the the cast sorry? You're like Thor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um not exactly, but um yeah, it it's a um really cool machine that does a lot of my heavy pounding. So Um, you start off with a bar of steel, whatever you want to make, um, you know, say I'm making, um, a lot of tapers. So I'm creating points on the end of, um, a bar and, um, to really move that metal, to stretch it out, you need to, um, make the most of the first 10 or 15 seconds after you pull it out of the fire. So when it's at that 28, 2700 degrees and really move the metal. And then as it cools, um you're planishing the metal but you're you have you've stopped actually changing um the dimensions of it so um to optimize that first 10 15 seconds have this machine called trip hammer and it uh, it um has three blows a second at full power it's three blows a second with 50 pound ram so it would be like if i could swing my hammer three times a second with a 50 pound hammer on uh that i'm holding on to so it's able to actually move the metal and do um the work of um multiple smiths within seconds wow
1: okay so this is so and then and so then you're creating shapes and and you're also creating bonds as well right is that part of it where you're where you're bonding one metal to another kind of thing or one piece to another piece
0: yep the um, forge welding is when you have two pieces that, that are right there at that sparkling temperature and you're able to um, throw some flux in between them and then um,
1: some flux. Them What's together? Flux? What's
0: flux? Uh, flux? Flux is um, a substance kind of like sugar that you put in onto the point where you want the two pieces welded together and um, it keeps oxygen from getting into the weld. So it creates an oxygen-free environment for that weld to happen. If you had air bubbles, um, then the weld would be bad, wouldn't wouldn't stay together. So you need to have a little flux in there. You need to be really quick. You have to know where where to hit. And then um, when, the, when the steel is still hot, you gotta have two pieces, they're exact same temperature, and, um, and then you hammer them together. And that's a forge weld. Um, I use a lot of other joinery techniques, um, riveting, bending, twisting, um, using large pieces of metal and, and um, bending them together rather than trying to actually join them together. So, and I, I have a modern welder as well. So um, when I need to, I can weld it together and then um, I, so that it actually keeps the steel together and then go ahead and forge weld it's you know a, a little bit of um, a shortcut there's lots of little shortcuts you can do
1: well this is but, but part of it is you're doing it for 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 the purpose right and and the purpose it sounds like is cuz a lot of the stuff you do is is functional right where it's yes. where it's banisters and railings and those kinds of things fences and stairways and All that kind of stuff but then so functional in that respect but then also functional in terms of the artistic part of it too right you have a vision for what you want to create and how you want it to look and so you have many tools some of which you create as well right
0: a lot of them which i create and a lot of them are antiques so um and then some of them are are new but um yeah it's uh it's always a challenge because, um, to every project is slightly different. Um, so every day is a little bit different and it it keeps it exciting. And you always have, um, problems to solve and, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do the same thing. So what I try to do is, um, have my artistic flair in, in functional artwork and, um, I've been able to um, make a business out of it for, gosh, it's going on 27 years now wow. that I've been doing this.
1: Well, let's let's go back to the beginning before we get to that, because I want to figure out how you make this into a business. But first, I want to figure out how you got started. So, so we were living in the same house in Vail. And as I remember it, and tell me if I'm wrong, you picked up when we used to have a phone book. <laughs> remember yep. that thing it was a phone book yep. it was kind of, <laughs> and you picked up yep. the, is that how this worked that you picked up the phone book and and tried to find somebody who is who was a blacksmith
0: that's exactly right yeah i looked up blacksmithing in the yellow pages <laughs> and um there was one listing um for iron creations in Westvale. Um, this guy named steve zoracek and um you know, i uh i was in the middle i was on having lunch break from this menial job where i was digging a ditch or something <laughs> and i gave um the blacksmith a, a buzz and um he was super nice and i kind of gave him my background a little bit over the phone and then he uh, said well if you get here in 10 minutes you got a job so um
1: wasn't there something about getting struck by lightning the week before or something too
0: exactly yeah well um he had um he'd been standing outside his shop holding on to some steel and he was standing in a puddle and um uh, some lightning struck about a quarter mile away and uh worked its way down a telephone line and then grounded out to him and um he burned the Uh, the skin right off the bottoms of his feet. And um, he was pretty frazzled for quite a while. And this was only about two months after that incident had happened. And he needed another set of hands because he had a a full slate of work to do. And he wasn't really able to do it. So for the next three years, I was his hands, essentially, and um, he was able to do some stuff. um, But for the most part um he would sit in the shop and tell me what to do and how to do it and um throw in a lot of colorful colorful stories along the way we called him Storycheck, um and he was a wonderful extremely intelligent mentor to have for for three years it so allowed me to learn the profession and um
1: i was really fortunate Which, which in a lot of ways, this was just an ideal situation for you learning at the, at the feet of this guy who had, who had done so much. Can you describe Steve though? I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta paint a picture of who Steve is or was.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but, um, Steve Zorichek, um, he went to the Colorado School of Mines and, um he, you know, obviously Coors Brewery is right there in Golden, Colorado. Um, so right after school, um, he graduated, uh, for the school of mines, I think it was in 58. So it kind of gives you an idea of his age. And, um, he started working for Coors Brewery and they were, they were just really, um, expanding the brewery at that time. And, um, um, he had this amazing um, ability to um, have uh, tons of information in his brain and he was um, a metallurgist and an engineer and um, he basically engineered all of the, the piping for, um, for the largest brewery in the world. Um, if you've ever taken a look at um Coors Brewery there's there's a lot of Anheuser-Busch breweries and they make more beer but Coors only has that one brewery and um it's massive and um he spent I think 10 years um working on how to get all the um all the beer from one end of the building for two of the other and you know all the ins and outs of brewing beer and uh pretty fascinating um process of you know he was working um directly on the same desk directly across the desk from um from one of the cores boys and um they really um made that into it from a mom and pop brewery into what it is today um, but he um, worked for Coors for um, I think it was about 20 years and he did a bunch of different things through the, um, the oil and, and gas shortage in the 70s. He um, revamped the whole brewery and um, was able to um, move them into the next uh, decade of um, brewing but one of the things that he did as a brewmaster was he um, came up with a recipe for Coors Light, um, which is one of the, uh, most consumed beers in the world. It's obviously very, um, notorious. And, um, he also came up with the recipe for ice beer. Um, so he had all these little pet projects that he was working on. And, um, in the mid seventies, he had a bit of, a, uh, a nervous breakdown and he decided that he didn't want to be an engineer anymore he wanted to um go to his little ski chalet up in vale colorado and um become
1: a blacksmith and this is literally a a wood a a, a log cabin well pretty much or was um, that actually, a
0: different one it was a slightly different that has a little story to it as well um and i'll try to be kind of quick with it but um ski instructors built his very shoddy home on forest road ski and ski out vale in 1962 which i believe is like the second year vale was open i think it did it open in 60 or 61 something like that but yeah, um sure. very early on in vale um he had ski and ski out property and on forest
1: he, on forest road which is on, like the yeah. most spectacular property in Vale, right? As as good as it gets, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well wow. So um, he um,
0: over the period of twenty years, again, he um, he took this this little shack up on Forest Road, and it, it, the wind blew through it. So he took a um, railroad depot and from up in Leadville and took it apart. He bought the railroad depot for a dollar. He uh, moved it to Vail piece by piece and um, put insulation on the inside of his house and then redoubled his walls and built the um, railroad depot inside his house. So um, it was board by, for board exactly the way it had been through the 1800s. It, you know, it was an amazing um, room to be in. Um, but, um, Ross Perot bought the, the, uh, land next door to him and he, Ross Perot didn't want this shack. So he bought, um, Steve out and, um, I think he gave him like a million dollars for the shack and this like eighth, eighth of an acre. And, um, Steve moved down to Westvale and he bought three acres and um was able to move his house which he'd spent 20 years on this this old railroad depot um he brought it like four or five miles down the road and put it on top of this massive foundation which then became his blacksmith shop wow and it was with the three acres he was a he also bought the oldest structure in vale which was the old dairy on elliott ranch road um down by the old i think it's the black bear lodge um so we had this little compound where he has a blacksmith shop downstairs um a railroad depot upstairs and the historic log cabin right next door and um for the three years i i was there it was just a constant um Amazing group of people that would come in and out of there, and you know Steve was such a great guy. He had friends all over the world that would just stop in, and um, it was a fantastic way to um, meet people in the Vale Valley and and learn the blacksmithing trade and learn a lot of
1: other cool stuff from this uh, extremely intelligent dude. Wow! So you, I mean, you studied fine art, you studied sculpture. How much did that prepare you for what you ended up doing as an iron sculptor? Or was Steve really your education in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways?
0: Well, um, I I think that um, my education really helped my art, Um, but the technical aspects of building my art, I learned from Steve. I look at a couple um, welding projects that I had done prior to meeting Steve and they're slightly embarrassing as far as you know the welds are horrible it's just technically really bad but artistically not not so bad at all so for those people who um, really don't know the technical aspects of blacksmithing it was fine but it wasn't as good as it could be so um I really uh, worked on the next th- three years. I was uh, just did an intensive program with them pretty much every day. I did work for Ski Club Vale as a ski coach in the winters, um, uh, about three or four days a week. And then um, the rest of the time I was down there in Westvale pounding on metal. Pounding on metal. Wow.
1: Yeah. This is, I mean, it's what, what an amazing story of just meeting Steve out of the, out of the yellow pages. And he's sitting there like you're pounding metal and he's sitting there telling you stories and probably drinking Coors Light. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's among, pretty much your day. Well, it's, among other things, that's Yeah. Wow. So, so you were there for three years and then, and then how did you decide to move to Crested Butte? Did you decide you were going to go out on your own or, or how did that work?
0: Yeah, I, um, we had gone to a couple blacksmithing conference down conferences down in Carbondale, um, the previous two summers. And I had met a bunch of other blacksmiths. Um, one guy that was pretty much the same age as myself and, um, John Murphy. And, uh, he lived down in, um, Powderhorn, Colorado, which is a little bit south of Gunnison. And, um, he was trying to put together a shop to start his own business and, but he didn't have enough tools and he had just started. Um, so um, we decided to put our talents and our tools together. And um, we rented this uh, little old shack <laughs> as a shop and um, we spent the next uh, three years together um, working on, iron work um, in Gunnison, Colorado. And uh, that was another really um, great experience. Learned a lot from John Murphy and he's still an excellent friend that I have here uh, in in Crested Butte. And we still hang out regularly.
1: And eventually you ended up uh, inheriting Steve's forge, didn't you, and like all of his tools and stuff, is that right, or? Um, A percentage of them. He had a lot of
0: friends. Um, (laughs) So uh, I got some really great tools from him, and I love being able to pull them out and use them because it reminds me of him. Um, And uh, maybe the knowledge that I learned when I was using that tool, you know, he uh, the actual forge itself um, went on to his nephews, his sister's boys. Um, and they kept a lot of the blacksmithing tools, okay. and um, so, but between John and I, we were able to um, pool together enough things to um, make it work. And then over the years, buy a lot more stuff that uh, that made us into a, like a reputable blacksmithing studio.
1: And you're not y- y- you and John are still good friends, but but you're not partners anymore. Is that right? No, or-
0: we're not. We we're both very different individuals. And so we, we both ultimately really wanted our own um, studios, our own say, you know, we didn't really want to have to check in with somebody every time we wanted to um, create something different, you know, different styles. Um, it, it, it just, it was the right time
1: for us to both kind of go on to our own things. Now, we're a bit ahead of ourselves in some ways because we talked about the technical part of of what you're doing in The Forge. We're talking about how you met Steve, how you got involved in it. But how did you get involved in art? How did you decide that you wanted to be an artist? And, you know, which is, I mean, you, you went to a good school, these kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily point you in the direction of being an artist. Even if you're studying fine art, it's still always a challenge, right? So how did you... How did you gravitate toward art?
0: Um, well, I
1: mean, the, the short answer is right? I. The, right?
0: the short answer is that... I'm sorry. Say that again.
1: Oh, I was saying your mom's a photographer too, right? Oh, she so, is. Yeah.
0: yeah. My mother's a photographer and she's very, very creative. And um, I loved doing photography. That was my um, second passion at st lawrence i um spent a lot of time with photography and at Holderness, i um i was really into it i really loved working in the dark room and having that creation be part of the process um so you know i really don't do a whole lot of photography anymore um other than with my phone um <laughs> It's it's like half the process, or maybe three quarters of the process, is just gone because we you don't know, I haven't been in a dark room in 20 years, maybe more. Um, but uh, that was that was certainly a big part of it. But um, I really en- um, enjoyed being in the studio, and I was pretty good at it. And gosh, it's uh, interesting when when you're good at something and you you get that feedback um you want to do it more and more and more and it it kind of feeds on itself um you know i i did okay in school i really um enjoyed being at holderness i learned a ton and then at st lawrence i um learned a ton and i i had a great time there but it was really in um the art studio that i excelled and so i decided that gosh, that would be crazy if I could actually use my major to learn to earn a living. Um, And uh, that's what I ended up doing.
1: Yeah, whoever does that, right? Whoever uses their major to to earn a living. (laughs) I know. How does this work, though? Do Do you have a vision of like, what you want to do, how you want to how you, how you want to create something. I mean, does it start with a vision? Does it start with a passion? Does it start with a purpose? How, how does that, how does that actually happen?
0: Well, it kind of depends on whether or not it's a commission and I'm uh, getting a deposit for it. And I have um, clients that want a really specific piece Um, or if I'm doing my own artwork and i can do whatever i want um you know both are great i enjoy both a lot um but obviously um being able to make a living out of it um for um is is really key so um first being able to talk to my clients and see exactly what they want um what the, um, the rest of their home looks like, um, what they, what type of art that they are really into and, and try to really, um, get to know them as people. And then, um, I'll mull on it for a while. And, um, you know, I've had a, uh, jacuzzi for about 15 years and that's where most of my ideas happen is in the jacuzzi (laughs) because i can just relax and think it through and that's um essentially the way i um i work through my my day my next day's um process while i'm kind of meditating in the jacuzzi which kind of sounds weird but at the same time it's really um so you can write off
1: your jacuzzi then
0: Oh, totally, yeah.
1: Total tax deduction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I got to try that. But um, it's very helpful to be able to, um, everything is, is very much of a step process. So I need to think through the steps. You can't do the sixth step before the second step. You have to go in, in the process. So um, if I can think through my entire um, next day, um and decide which direction I want to go in. Then when I get to the shop the next day, things just seem to flow. And there's a lot of time, things and times that I have to work out a problem, but um, I've already essentially figured out in my head what I want it to look like and how big I want it and, you know, however um, I want to go
1: with it. Is this all in your head? Or is this, or are you writing this down? I mean, I don't know what you're doing when you're in the jacuzzi, you know? I don't know if, you, if you're <laughs> able to write when you're in the jacuzzi or- in, uh, No,
0: I, I do a lot of drawing and I love to draw full size with um, a soapstone on my table. That's five by 10, five feet wide by 10 feet long. So um, it really, to go full size and figure out shapes and sizes and materials and, um, and do a lot of sketching as well. And, um, and then it comes down to really the brass tacks of how, it's, how you're gonna build it and what materials you're gonna use and where is that starting point? Because that's really, you know, the, the hardest part is actually starting. Once you start, once you get things rolling, it seems to almost happen by itself. You know a lot of blood sweat and tears along the way but uh it flows there's there's a flow state there that i am constantly trying to get in because the artwork's way better if you're not if you're not just forcing it you you're need not in to, your like, head yeah let it roll
1: that's interesting now now are you up against time constraints because you have you have this this almost molten metal yeah That's 2,800 degrees, but it cools pretty quickly. And so, so are you kind of, you know, I mean, when you think about this, you must be thinking, okay, well, I need to do this, and I only have X amount of time, yeah, in order to achieve that. So you're you're fighting the molten metal effectively as you're going, or or you're or you're in the flow with the molten metal.
0: Yes, exactly. And, um, and that's another bonus of using propane is I can be working on four or five pieces at once. So I'll have four or five pieces in the, um, in the forge. I'll take the hottest one out, work it for um, 30 to 45 seconds and put it back in, pull the next one out, work on that one for... 30 to 45 seconds, and, and then that's just the hot work. So I'll do that for say three or four hours a day. Um, and the other three or four hours a day is um, tooling for it, making jigs for it, uh, um, lay layout, Um obviously dealing with clients and paperwork. And um, I'm also the janitor. You know, so it got a lot of hats, hats. to wear. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not swinging a hammer for eight hours a day. But I, I work for about that every day. And, um, you know, jumping around from one thing to another allows you, your body to uh, sustain. Right.
1: To keep yeah. it going. Okay, so, so you went and you talked to Steve, you, you said, I want to, I want to be an intern. So, and Steve eventually was paying you, I'm assuming as well. Right? Or not?
0: well <laughs> um uh, money was probably not the, um his best uh thing Strongest he really trend. had a, he had a hard time budgeting for things like that so i kind of took over that side of things where um i would Uh, create estimates for clients and um and try try to stay on task but essentially uh, you would get paid at the end of the project um and um he was very generous to me um and when he had money he'd spend it or give it all away and and it was gone again and (laughs) so then um to eat we would do some trade um with the local restaurant so that we could uh we went up to this this awesome restaurant the dancing bear for breakfast lunch and dinner we'd fix their um their kitchen appliances and things like that just so that we could for those first couple of years, it was uh, pretty touch and go. I also had a little bit of um, money from um, Ski Club Vale, And I did a little bit of work um, with sharpshooters, uh, taking pictures of people at the top of lifts, things like that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that just seems absolutely perfect with Steve, that it's just kind of like, yeah, you get paid when it's done if i have money you get paid and, and yeah, i don't know how much i don't know you know. <laughs> we'll
0: see when see how much money we have left when we get there
1: well this is this is such the artist experience too right of like yeah you're not getting paid every 2 weeks you don't have health insurance you don't have you don't have a 401k no when you went out on your own how did you make that work because then it's not just doing the work it's not just the forging it's creating those relationships with the clients it's getting your work out there so people know who you are it's the two different kinds of work that you do right where you do call it call it more structural kind of work is that is that versus like the artistic kind of work as well um
0: yes i i stay away from structural steel as much as i can okay um but, um, but there certainly are those projects that um, are not artistic. Um, they are, are pretty straightforward. And um, so, you know, you gotta do plenty of that to, uh, to get a paycheck as well. And then you get a little bit more jazzed when it comes to something that's more of a challenge and um, something that you can really get your head into.
1: But how did you create those relationships? How did you create the demand for your work? Whether it was artistic work, whether it was railings, whether it was stairs, whether it was structural stuff, how did you how did you do that part? Because that's the business, right? You could go to your forge and you could go make stuff all day long, yeah, yeah, and and not have anybody buy it, totally. which doesn't seem like a great business.
0: <laughs> no, it's not good at all. I tried that; it does not work. Um, but luckily with blacksmithing, um, you can also work in the construction industry. And so I got in with um, about three or four contractors that uh, used me for fireplace doors. Um, and that would be normally towards the beginning of um, a project. And then hood vents. Um, you know, it's more when they're working on the kitchen and get uh midway through the projects and then uh obviously um stair railings and um and that type of thing and then once the the project was pretty close to finished i also had a relationship with the client that was you know buying or building the um building and they would then have um do furniture or door hardware or i do a lot of bathroom hardware um and then once that stuff was done and in lots of the time they'd have me come back to do some artwork for the walls or, um, you know, maybe something out in front of the house. Um, so that's pretty much how it went for the first 20 years. I was in
1: business, something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: go uh, up at the job site. Like initially, did you show up at the job? Did you see like a house going up and go, Hey, uh, I got a forge here. <laughs> I heat up some metal. Do you guys need any of that kind of stuff? How, how did that, How does that initial conversation work? Well, it's
0: first of all Crested Butte. It's a relatively small town, and uh, in the '90s, there was probably uh, about six uh, major contractors, construction um, um, teams that would uh, they if you had a, a in with with them, then you know, depending on where they were in their project, they'd call you. So if you have a good relationship um, with the different um, people that built the homes, then you um, had a pretty constant flow of work. And if I ever was slow then i could pick up my own stuff and and do my own artwork and, and maybe that would sell maybe not but it certainly even if it didn't sell it would create um really good samples and i could use those for something else in the future so i could but, kind of build on
1: it where did you meet these construction people did you did did you meet them on the hill did you meet them You know, in the bar, did you where where did you meet these guys? Who
0: sometimes you would you would actually show up on a site, um, but mostly, yeah, usually through either skiing or through the bar or through other friends. Or um, you know, there's a lot of different contacts and not that many people, so um, that wasn't the actual meeting wasn't that difficult. But the uh, making them happy and doing uh, a product, creating a product that they loved and that um, their clients then um, would rave about. That was my goal. Because if, if that happened, then the next job is that much easier. So as long as you get that ball rolling and you uh, prove that you can do whatever project that they might throw at you. Um, then you can just kind of keep going with it. So that's pretty much what I did. And I've been doing it consistently um, now for almost 27 years, um, with the exception of um, there was a nine month stint where my wife um, was getting her master's degree in Europe. And um, I decided to shut down shop and go join her. And um, I thought, Originally, I thought I was going to be going over to Europe and taking an intensive course on, on blacksmithing and going around to the original blacksmiths and, and, uh, and seeing how they did their trade. And uh, so I did go around and I met a lot of blacksmiths. I saw a lot of shops over there in Europe, but I didn't, because of the green card issue, I was not able to work for her. Uh
1: Okay. But, yeah. and, and so... So it's so it's interesting too right because you're you're creating a business as you said you are you are everything from the from the janitor to the accountant to the to the artist to the CEO of this of this company you are you are all of it but you also found a way to have a full life to to get out and ski a fair amount. I mean, it's obviously, you know, you can see the mountains right there, right? It's like one of those, like, okay, it looks like we got some new snow last night. Yeah, maybe maybe we're not going to work today. Maybe I'll go out <laughs> and go ski a little bit. But uh, But skiing was obviously an early passion for you. And that's how you and I connected was through ski racing. You and my brother, Matt, are the same age. And so our fathers used to, and Ace and I are basically the same age, you know, so our fathers used to hang out on the on the uh, on the ski slope and who knows what they talked about but but they were they used to hang out on the ski slope and but skiing's been a huge part and and so then you you go to crested butte and and you go ski a bunch of different things i mean like leaving the alpine side for the telly side i mean i saw you with a gigantic uh one of those old time what what do you even call it like the the old time pole like the big stick that you uh lurch a lurch Um, and then they do they call it the
0: telly stick as well. There's actually a guy that um that makes them calls them the telly stick. So it's just one big stick used for a pole instead of two. But that was really fun too. Yeah, skiing has has been um the constant through my life that's uh kind of guided me and pushed pushed me to um to meet great people and see great places and do great things and and um ski racing. Um, allowed me to have uh, some focus and um, and I really have everything to thank for uh, for the life that I have um, ski racing has been um, the, the constant in my life that's really been wonderful
1: well you went from growing up in Waterville Valley New Hampshire yes. which is I mean, how many how many people lived in Waterville when you grew up in Waterville? The sign said population 199, 199. So just under 200.
0: Yeah, but I think that might have been elevated a bit. That might have been a few of the people that um, had second homes there that were calling that their uh, primary residence. Um, but there was, um, when I started there in, in um, elementary school there in 1979, there was, I think there was nine kids in school, kindergarten through eighth grade, <laughs> um, the entire school, not just each grade, it was a one room schoolhouse, um, it was uh, you know, my brother was one of those nine kids. So um, we didn't have a whole lot of team sports. Let's say that um, skiing was it. And um, luckily we had ski re- ski area right there and we could get off school and jump on the bus and get to ski
1: pretty much every afternoon in, in the winter. Like that bus, because I imagine this was probably your school bus, like that shuttle bus was almost like your school bus of like...
0: It was. Around. We didn't have a school bus. None no, of They weren't yellow. They were blue, and um, <laughs> we had a. Um, you know, everybody knew everybody, so um, you know, people looked out for one another, and um, they made sure that that uh, after we got done with school, that we were we were heading to the ski area, and then uh, maybe the lift attendants would keep an eye on us and make sure that we weren't causing too much trouble. Uh, it was a very unique way to grow up. And um, you know, luckily, um, ski racing was there for us. You know, the, uh, back east, uh, the, the snow wasn't fantastic, um, but it really didn't matter for, for ski racing. You know, as long as you had a little bit of ice, you could do what you needed to do. You
1: could, exactly. But then yeah. you left Waterville, which to me, coming from Massachusetts, always seemed like a big mountain but then you went from Waterville to Crested Butte, which is a gigantic mountain by, 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 by comparison. And so, so wh- where did you, where did you gravitate? Cause you left the, the chasing the sticks kind of thing of, of ski racing and just yeah. explored the mountain too.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, um, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to um, keep ski racing and I wanted another challenge um so um my my dear friend fritz sample um introduced me to telemark skiing and um it that was that was a fantastic new sport i mean obviously most of um the technical aspects of alpine skiing translate directly to telemark skiing but it was slightly, um, slightly different. And, um, I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning something new.
1: To, to, okay. So, so kind of describe, cause, cause some people might not know describe what telemark skiing is and why it's different and what your progression was. Okay. Well, telemark skiing comes from
0: Nordic skiing and, um, and it's actually one of the, the first techniques that people used to get down mountains on skis. Um, basically it's a ski binding that has no heel piece. Um, so you're free healing it. Um, so you have a different style turn where you pull one ski in front of the other. And um, it allows you to, still carve a turn and only be really attached to the skis by your toes Uh, sounds kind of silly but um when you see it it's um it's art in motion uh it's a very fluid turn it feels nice and um and it's it's difficult it's um i i'd say it's quite a bit more difficult than standard alpine skiing so um it's you know you fall on your face a bunch of times but you got to get back up and you know make it a little bit better every time and um you know the, that progression um really made me fall in love with skiing all over again
1: and it's a workout though too right oh
0: man yeah it's really really hard on the thighs and um you know you're, you're in this middle of this turn and apex of the turn, and you're basically in a squat position. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, after a full run of absorbing bumps and jumping off stuff and, you know, making really carving turns, um, your legs are just screaming at you. So, um, it's a great workout. And are I, you, I oops, go ahead. Uh, since then my knees have really not done very well so I've I've gone back to alpine skiing when when I went back to alpine skiing um the technology of of uh skis had just made this huge advancement so it was almost like a new thing there as well so um being able to jump on fat skis and skis that had really big side cuts was um was yeah. another exciting adventure in skiing.
1: Yeah. No, I mean it's but that's the cool sport, cool thing, right? I mean, we started skiing at such a young age that that then to be able to come back to it and recognize the social part. That was the thing for me after after competing for 15 years or like, you know, effectively professionally for like 15 years and then coming back, where when you're competing, you're sort of worried about getting hurt doing the stuff that's fun. As opposed to the stuff that's actually your job and then recognizing that, wow, I can do this, I can ski what's fun, and I can also enjoy it with other people. I can be with my friends and have a good time, which is I think one of the greatest things about skiing, and then also sort of the generational part where you know grandparents can ski with the grandkids and yeah. and every all the generations can be together at the same time. Now, were you taking lifts? Or, or, or are you a hiker? Are you a backcountry? country?
0: Oh, uh, okay. Um, I definitely took a lot of lifts and I uh, loved skiing the ski area of, of Crested Butte. Crested Butte was totally new to me when I moved here. And uh, if, for those of you that don't know about Crested Butte, it's known as the extreme mountain. You know, it, uh, it has extremely steep terrain, um, lots of cliffs, Uh, It's very challenging. And um, so again, it just, um, it was something totally different. Vale is is a fabulous ski area with hundreds of thousands of acres of perfectly groomed terrain. And, but um, it didn't have that kind of rough edge to it. And it didn't have um, trails that, you know, you can't see the bottom of because they're they're so steep. So um, I really enjoyed getting into steep skiing and um i started doing a little um, some extreme competitions um where basically you're judged on um, your skiing technique and, and your line and uh, you know what how you crazy you out, are how crazy you are that <laughs> that type of thing so that was um a fun chapter to go through
1: sure. when did the flying start when did you start paragliding
0: um, that was when um, I spent that nine months in Europe with my wife in 2004, and um, she was um, busy getting her master. She did a two-year program in one year, so she didn't um, really have a whole lot of time for me. So um, I, I read a lot of books, and right in our backyard, um, we had this uh, mountain called the Selev we were right on the border between switzerland and france okay. and um right outside of geneva switzerland so the launch was in france and the landing zone was in switzerland so uh, you had to go uh, across the border I think, probably like six times a day uh, and i just fell in love with it it was uh Learning, especially learning over there, because it's a normal sport over there. There's a lot of people that do it. It's um, it's not necessarily this horribly risky thing that people think we're crazy for doing in the United States. In Europe, it's just like, oh yeah, let's go for a flight. It's it's no big deal. It's just it's just another way to see the planet.
1: And did you um, just see these guys flying and go, I want to do that? Or I-? yeah. Yeah,
0: And I I hiked up there and um, just kind of hung out on launch and just watched tons of people launching. And then one day, some dude was like, well, I brought my tandem gear, but my wife didn't want to go with me. So I need somebody to go with me. So um, I strapped in with him and the rest is history. I just was like, where do I sign up? How do I buy one of those? I'm in.
1: How's your French?
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) not so good but um i learned enough i did learn how to paraglide in french but i don't really speak any french (laughs) so um it was a lot of pointing and and yelling and
1: uh (laughs) yeah It was but with different. a little bit of with a little bit at stake, though, too. Right. Like, you know, in French pointing this and that. But you kind of want to know what you're doing, especially because eventually you're going to be in the air and, and sort of have to execute on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so the first couple of times you're actually you know, riding with somebody else as a, um, your tandem passenger, but then they'll give you the, uh, the brakes and let you, um, fly the glider and, um, and then you watching people launch and land. And then there's a, um, a student Hill where you actually only get off the ground by maybe 10 feet or something, but you just do launches and landings, launches and landings, launches and landings and know how to, um, control the glider uh understand the rules and understand the weather and um you know there's so many different aspects to it uh i i got to because i wasn't doing anything and i didn't have a job over there um i was the shuttle driver for the really good pilots in the middle of the day when when the thermals were going off and it was really difficult flying um and then in the afternoon or in the morning when it's it's mellower, then I would fly uh, for the, about the first month or two. And then, you know, kind of ease my way into um, thermal flying and learning how to go up. So once you've kind of, I wouldn't say mastered, but really understand how a paraglider works, your main mission is to look for air that is rising, whether it be um, ridge soaring or thermal flying and um so that's kind of your goal is to try to stay up as long as you can and uh, look for birds and try to emulate what they're doing and uh, and then you can end up staying up for many many hours and travel long distances last summer i i, I went 108 miles my paraglider <laughs> went
1: 108 miles yeah wow. from yeah. where to where
0: um chelan washington uh, is a notoriously great place to fly and uh from chelan butte um i flew off into uh the the wheat fields um towards spokane washington and um there's just one little thermal after another after another after another after another creates little cloud streets and um, you can just it takes quite a bit of um, know-how and skill but you can just go forever the only reason I had to come down is just getting dark and uh, I was in Spokane airspace (laughs) so uh, yeah it's um, very weather dependent depends upon the day you can't just say oh I'm going to go fly for seven hours all the stars have to align and um, and you have to have your stuff together and know what you're doing and um it really helps to have really good friends that are also good pilots that uh, kind um show you where the thermals are and if you go with a group you can see oh my buddy off to the right is catching a thermal and going up my buddy to the left is going down i'm going to go to the right (laughs) so there's a ton of that and you're um, constantly looking for those thermals.
1: That's interesting. So I was, so 108 miles, because I thought I remembered being in Crested Butte and you talking about trying to fly, fly to Aspen. Yes. From Crested Butte. Is that, is that sort of one of the goals, which is, which is a lot less, right? That's like 14 miles or something. Yes. Like yes.
0: But, but there are, what is it like six, 14,000 foot peaks in the way?
1: ah so that's kind of a big deal
0: yeah yeah it is um and so you um there are quite a few people that have flown from aspen to crested Butte. um there have been hang gliders um that have flown from crested Butte to aspen but nobody has done it on a paraglider yet um so hopefully this summer <laughs> we'll see you know technology keeps getting better knowledge is Better, um, you know, we just have to be there at the right time, right day, and um, and really to get over those peaks, you have to get up to seventeen thousand feet. Um, so then you can go on glide towards Aspen. You might lose a few thousand feet. Hopefully, you'll get a few um, few thermals on the way and um, get over those
1: fourteen thousand foot peaks. Is that an issue with the oxygen? You get a lot less oxygen at 17,000 feet, right? Yep, you do. So
0: if you think you're going to, if it's a boomer day and you think you're going to go try for it, you bring supplemental oxygen with you. Because you
1: want to kind of have all your faculties.
0: Yes, yes. you definitely do. And and they tell you that you start um, losing your decision making um, when you get up to around 15,000 feet and you get a little dingy.
1: You do, and especially because you're doing it quickly. If you're riding this thermal, you're yes. going from, I mean, you guys start, you live at, at almost 10,000 feet, right? I mean, 9,000 feet. Well, you're in Christa Beach South, right? So it might be a little bit lower.
0: Yeah. My house is at about 9,000 feet. Okay. And then um, our launch on the ski area is at 11,000 feet. And the peak of the ski area is 12,162 or something like that. Um, And then if you can get above the peak of the Butte, um, there's massive rocks that face west. And um, if you hit it at the right time and those rocks have been um, soaking up energy from the sun all day long, they're going to pop off thermals. So you get over them and then you just take the elevator up. take the elevator uh, up that is really the magic behind the sport is you know the chess game of trying to figure out when to go and when not to go and and how to to get in a thermal and how far you should ride it up before it becomes something that you want to get out of.
1: (laughs) Which is awesome. So if you land in aspen if you if you make it then how how long a drive is it back from Aspen to Crested Butte? Because you, you've got to get picked up there, right? Yeah. I mean, 14, 14 miles as the crow flies. Yeah. It's not that not that. Yeah, it's, short. it's like
0: a three hour drive in the summertime when Kebler Pass is open and McClure Pass is open. And then you got to go to Carbondale and then you got to go up to Aspen. So that's um, yeah, a long way around uh, the Continental Divide how um, well,
1: long would it take you to, to fly there? Do you know? I mean, it's, that, that's one of those, it's really unpredictable, right?
0: I don't know. Especially since I haven't done it yet.
1: Good yet. point. Good point. <laughs> <Nobody's>
0: <laughs> at least two hours. Um, but could be more, could be more could now, be that, more. Um, that 108 mile flight that I did took me seven and a half hours, I think um of being up there and um because you're not going in a straight that's 108 miles in a straight line but you're you're going in spirals you're constantly turning and you're trying to go up as high as you can and then you go straight for a while in one direction to get to another one you go up and so um you know if they actually measured your distance that you have traveled it'd be more like 250 miles it's um ridiculous how how far you have to go to get from a point from point a to point
1: b well that's the way it works on on the wind right i mean it's the same kind of thing with a sailboat or 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 you know that kind of where you're you're tacking back and forth across the you want to get from here to there but you've got to go left and right and left and right a whole lot of times in order to get there. (laughs) exactly exactly and that's the fun of it If you could just go
0: straight, then there really wouldn't be a sport involved. and You'd do it once or twice and be good.
1: Well, other than like downhill skiing, right? I mean, it's the same kind of thing where you just go straight and call it good and go off the jumps and all those things. So, Benny, we've talked about we've talked about the art. We've talked about we've talked about skiing. We've talked about flying. Is is there a philosophy that brings it, that brings this all together, like a pursuit for you? Like what, what, what are you looking for? What, what makes you happy in terms of what you do? Um,
0: well, I think um, mostly it's, it's an attitude and um, it's a frame of mind that I've tried to get into. Um, uh, 2001, I was in a, a bad car accident. And, um, up until that time I was motivated. I was really, um, I loved living. Um, but I, I don't feel like I had a whole lot of focus and, um, you know, this tragedy that happened, um, a friend of mine passed and, uh, it was a really difficult time to go through, but, um, in the long run, I think it really focused me and, uh, it made me think about, today. I got to seize today. And um, so since um, since the accident, I've been able to, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that I was the next one to go. I, didn't, I really believed that I was not going to make it to age 50. So I felt like uh, I really had to take advantage of the time that I had And that made me learn how to paraglide. It made me, you know, try things skiing. It made me try, you know, meet more people, go different places, you know? So, um, you know, I get a little choked up talking about it because it was a really difficult time, but it really did teach me a lot and made me appreciate life.
1: Does that manifest itself in your artwork too? And trying to figure out and taking taking because I mean art so much is about achieving a level of honesty and a level of vulnerability and and taking some chances to get there. It, it, is that part of has it pushed you in that direction as well?
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's um, it made me want to take chances. You know, I'm um, throughout my life I've always wanted to do you know, it's almost contrary to what uh, the masses wanted to do. You know, I wanted to, I've, I've always enjoyed being in, you know, a niche, a niche profession, being a blacksmith, you know, um, a niche sport being paragliding. You know, I, I don't want to follow um, the crowds and try to do what other people are doing. I want to do my own thing. And uh, in doing so, I've learned a lot about myself, I've learned a lot about, you know, how I want to be and how I want to live. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's it's been a journey. It's, it's still it, and uh, uh, luckily it's uh, been a, a really great journey where um, I've, I've been lucky enough to have a great life and um, a great wife. <laughs> and
1: uh,
0: yeah, I'm generally really happy.
1: Happy and fulfilled. It seems like is that is that fair to say?
0: Yes. Yeah. Being fulfilled is uh, you know you have to um, be able to look yourself in the mirror and know that um, you're you're doing something worthwhile. Uh, you're not just you know doing the same thing every day. You you have to push your boundaries and get to the point where you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, um, and push through that and uh, do new things, learn new things.
1: That's, that's, that's what I love about what you're doing, Benny. I mean, you, you've taken the risk to, to do what's, you know, to do what's not traditional, right? Like, I'm gonna go be a blacksmith, you know? I mean, this is, I, I'd imagine your college advisor probably wasn't going, oh, okay, like uh, you, you can go interview with this group to be a blacksmith or you can you know, it's like there's no logical path to get there it's kind of like well if that's what you're gonna do uh yeah you're gonna be on your own
0: (laughs) totally well you're totally right you nailed it there and there's a lot of people that um when i when i told them what i was doing or what i planned to do they kind of look at me like okay All right, you have fun with that. And when you're done with that, then you're going to get serious and get a real job. And um, and life will go on. But I never quite went there. uh, Stuck with stuck with the blacksmithing and things that that just made me tick.
1: Well, which has been 27 years. And was there a time along the way when you thought I'm not going to be able to make this work?
0: yeah Uh, yes absolutely yeah yeah there's a um especially early on it's just hard to make money right uh and if you if you can't you know pay your bills then you gotta figure out well how am i gonna do that you know what's the what's the next way to do it but everything always seemed to um to work out and um you know it uh I think after the first six years or so, I was pretty much set in my ways on on knowing that this is the profession that I had chosen. And I was happy with uh, continuing on with it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my choice.
1: Did you what, what kept you going during those difficult, you know, during when you're like, oh, I'm not really making any money. I might have to you know, pick up another job or do something else or yeah. or whatever. What kept you going during those times? The art. The art. The
0: artwork. Yeah. Um, because that was um that was something that I could uh, nobody had to tell me what to do. I could I had a um challenge in front of me. And if I could um accept that challenge and um, create something that I was proud of, then that was enough to um, be happy and, and move on to the next project. You know, even if I wasn't getting paid for it, it there's still a lot of um, gratification in building something that, uh, that nobody had ever built before, whether it be something s- small and inconsequential or something that, um, you know, lives on today, you know, as a piece of artwork and a home that uh, that I can be proud of.
1: That's awesome. That is, cause that's always the big question for all of us, right? I mean, it's kind of like you have a dream, but chasing down that dream, you you run into a whole lot of challenges. And then how do you keep going when it gets difficult? Because you see it 27 years later and it's like, oh, well, this is what he does. And it's like, well, this is what he does because he created the business to be able to do it. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, here you go. This is a profession. Go, go, go do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. you, you can make it into whatever you want to make it into. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people that uh, blacksmith is a hobby and, um, and that's fantastic. That's great. Um, but I, my goal was to bring it to that next level, try to, uh, make a living out of it. Uh, luckily it's, it's worked out.
1: Oh, it's awesome, Ben. And I mean, I just look at you and go, wow, that is, that is so cool. I mean, it's so cool. Kind of what you've created as a profession, as a lifestyle and, uh, you know, as, as somebody who's in pursuit of beautiful and fun, that, those seem like some pretty decent pursuits to me.
0: Yeah. I don't know what else there is really. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is, this is just so cool for me to have an opportunity to talk to you and to, to relive some of those times and learn about, learn about what you do learn about a bit more about Steve and how Steve helped push you in, in this direction. And uh, you know, and just, just all that great stuff. So thanks so much for joining us, man. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks a lot, Chris. I love you like a brother, man.
1: That's exactly it. Love you like a brother too. That's for sure, Benny. And, and for all of you, thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, the greatest compliment that you can pay us is to like us, to follow us, uh, you know, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your podcast. But the other great thing that you can do for us is tell your friends, tell your friends that we have cool people with doing interesting things. They are experts in the experience of being human. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.